Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna be. Uh, but no, but I, I love being here at Syracuse. Uh, and, and so I, I just want to give a, a quick shout out, a quick plug for our youth ministry. That is our 7th through 12th grade ministry. Uh, we meet on Wednesday nights at the Riverdale campus at 7 o'clock. If you have a student or you know somebody who would uh, would would feel good about coming to that, they could use that, they could be poured into there, uh, please get them there on Wednesday night. We, we would love to see them there. We would love to get them uh, plugged in. And, and really it's about uh, giving our youth a foundation in Christ. It's about letting them know why they believe what they believe, or even if they are not sure what they believe yet, helping them to understand that and have that foundation before they leave high school so that they are secure in their faith when they get out there into the real world, and, and, and the real world is, is really uh, what we're talking about as we talk about these, these culture wars that we're, uh, that we're dealing with. And so if you've, if, this is week five in this series, and if you've missed any of the past weeks, let me just give you uh, just a, a quick run back of where we've been. In, in week one in this series, we're, we're going through the book of First Peter, and we talked about how as Christians, this isn't our home. Right? This isn't where we belong, and because of that, because we're foreigners here, that we're going to experience trials. We're going to experience hardships and things that come our way because of our belief, because of our faith in Christ. And it's those things that when we focus on them, we have to realize that they are also temporary. Not only is this our temporary home, but those trials that we deal with are temporary, and so we look to God uh, in, in, in those things because this isn't our permanent place of residence. In week two, we talked about how we should act in the midst of those culture wars, what it looks like as, as a Christian when we're out there dealing with those things. And, and really, that week was about uh, honoring our neighbors, right, loving our neighbors like we love ourselves. But it was, we also talked about um, listening and kind of submitting to government authorities, submitting to authority in our life, uh, unless that authority is telling us to do something that goes against God's word. Week three, we talked about kind of the, the misinformation that, that culture tries to push on us, uh, specifically in marriage and the roles that husbands and wives have in, in, in the household. Uh, we, we had a little pushback on that of, of what culture says as we, as we talked about what the Bible has to say in those situations. And then last week, we talked about the fact that there's not just this war going on around us. There's a war going on inside of us, right? When we give our life over to Christ, God says he gives us a new heart, he makes us a new person, and that new person is constantly fighting with our old habits, with our old temptations, and we, we saw that really the key to winning that battle was to pursue God recklessly, to pursue God just no matter what's going on, no matter what we're dealing with, to, to, to go after God and to let him be part of our life and to let God's spirit work in and through us. And, and then finally today, as we look at this last chapter in 1 Peter, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at Peter's final battle instructions, the last thing that he tells us to do as we head into these culture wars. And, and really, I hope that today's message brings a little bit of encouragement because I know that those first four weeks have been tough. Like, I'll, I'll be honest, for me, those have been some of the most convicting messages that we've done here at Alpine, right? And, and to think about the, the, the trials and the struggles that we're facing out there in the world just simply because of our beliefs. Like, it, it, it's been hard. It's been hard to hear them. It's been hard to prepare those messages and to go and, and, and talk about them. So this one, I, I hope, brings a little bit more encouragement into uh, what we've been talking about. And as we see the, the um, we hear these past four weeks, the, the struggles of, of, of and the hardships of what it's like to be a Christian in America. And then we go home from Sunday and we turn on the TV and we see everything that's happening in the world. And, and it might just be like, why do we even try? Like, why do we even try? What's, what's, what's the point? Why battle culture when it feels like we're just beating our head against a wall? 
Right? And over the past few years, dealing with COVID and all this stuff, doing ministry in COVID, like I've found myself a few times being like, it would be okay if Jesus just showed up. <laughs> right? Like I, it just, that, that wouldn't be so bad if Jesus showed up and this was all done with and we could just go home to our permanent residence with God. And that's okay. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to sometimes think, man, like, where, where is Jesus? Like, just come back and let's just, let's just, let's just get this thing over with. Now, we have to remember that, that we're not the first generation to wonder what's been taking Jesus so long. Right? We're not the first people to, to think about that. We're not the first people to be dealing with culture wars in our society. Uh, in fact, clear back in Peter's time, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says this, says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. All the way back in Peter's time, people were like, where is Jesus? When is he coming back? And this promise that Peter's talking about here is that we can trust in God's timing. Right? Because God's timing is perfect, and ours is far from. We can trust in, 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 in God's timing. And that, that really brings us to our first point. In 1 Peter chapter 5, this last, this last chapter here, Peter reminds us that the, 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 the church, the battle that we are in with our culture is not a losing effort. It is not a, a losing effort. And this same thing was given, this same information was shared with Peter 30 years earlier than that when Jesus brought all the disciples together for the Last Supper. And so today we're going to be looking at, at 1 Peter chapter 5, but we're also going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. And that we're going to see a lot of similarities between the information that, that, that Jesus shared with his disciples uh, before he was betrayed and then now the information that Peter is sharing with the early church. So as, as one of the 12 disciples, Peter would have been there for the Last Supper. He would have been there when, when Jesus was sharing this information with him. And now we get to see that information come forward, the, the information that he received directly from the Messiah. We get to see that played out. And we see in Peter's life and in his letters the, the, the difference from when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, to when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And we get to see him put the things that Jesus said into practice. So just a little more context with Luke 22. As I said, it's, 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 this is the last night that he gets together with his disciples. They're together. They're, they're, they're celebrating the Passover, right? And, and in the midst of that, Jesus, he takes the bread, breaks it apart, and he says, this is in remembrance. Eat this bread in remembrance of my body, which is going to be broken for you. And he takes the wine, and he, pour, he, he shares the wine. He says, drink this wine in remembrance of my blood, that will, be, that will be poured out for you. Now, in the midst of, of, of this, an, an argument breaks out because he tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray them. One of them is going to betray him. Right? And the, the, the disciples start arguing. They're saying, surely it's not me. You know, and they're probably pointing fingers. Like, and I imagine Peter's like right in the middle of this argument, right? Because that's who Peter is. And so in, in the midst of this, Jesus is dealing with this. All, he has all this weight coming down on him, knowing that he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested and beaten and mocked and scorned and ultimately hung on a cross. And yet he still takes the time to patiently teach and encourage the disciples. Because that's the, that's the kind of Savior that we follow. Right? He still takes time to do this. And so that, that's what's happening in, in Luke 22. And so now we're going to see how the instructions that Peter gives to the early church really echo what Jesus said. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look uh, at, at what Jesus told his disciples in roughly 33 A.D., and then about 30 years later, 63 A.D.-ish, Peter's instructions to the church. And so this first instruction that we get is that we should approach the battle with humility. Okay, we should approach the battle with humility. Jesus says this in Luke 22 to his disciples. He says, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. 
Jesus told them, in this world, kings and great men lord it over their people. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. So Jesus has just finished telling the disciples that one of them is going to betray them. Right? They all begin to, to argue and question about, about who it was. This progresses into an argument about which of them is going to be greatest. Right? And this wasn't the first time they had this argument. Like This happens multiple times throughout the gospel. James and John even got their moms involved in the argument. Right? Their moms asking Jesus who's going to sit at his left and right hand. Right? So this, this thing was, was going on and on. And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. You guys just don't, don't get it. Being the greatest is not what the world says being the greatest is. Right? That's, that, that's not what it means. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the one who serves. He says the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. And for Jesus, this was, he, wasn't just, he didn't just talk the talk. Right? Jesus walked the walk. He modeled exactly what this looked like. In the midst of somewhere during this conversation, this is when Jesus gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. Right? The king of kings, the, the lord of lords, he humbles himself to the most lowliest of servant positions, and he washes the disciples' feet, even Judas Iscariot's feet, right, who he knew was going to betray him. So Jesus modeled this, and then I'm sure 30 years later, as, as Peter is writing his letter to the early church, that image of what Jesus did that night was probably still etched clearly in his mind. And so we look at what Peter says. He says, And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Now this word dress that's, that's used here, it's typically used to describe a servant putting on an apron. Okay, and that's exactly what Jesus did. The gospel tells us that he got up from the table, he took off his outer garment, and he, he grabbed a, a towel or an apron, and he, and he wrapped it around his waist before he washed the disciples' feet. And so we can see how this would have impacted Peter's writing here. And there, there's something almost ironic about Peter telling people to clothe themselves in humility, right? Because again, Peter, we, we know this is the same Peter who cut the guy's ear off when they came to arrest Jesus. This is the same Peter who he tried to rebuke Jesus, right? And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So this, this is the same Peter who was always he was involved in the arguments of who was going to be the greatest. This is the same Peter that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, God, all these other guys, they might chicken out. All these other guys might, might flee from you, but I never will. And then sure enough, three times that night, he denies even knowing Jesus. So Peter understands this, this, what, it, what it means to be humbled because Peter was humbled. Okay, in that situation, Peter was humbled. He knew, he knew what it was like to not clothe yourself in humility, but he knew the sting that came from the fall Right? He knew the sting that when you're full of pride and you fall from that, he knew exactly what that was like. Now, if we back up a little bit uh, in chapter 5 to, to the first verse, Peter, he actually addresses the elders in the church. And depending on what translation you have, he either identifies himself as a, as a fellow elder or he just says, I am also one of the elders. Now, Peter could have very easily said, I am the chief elder of the church. Right? He could have easily said, like, I am the, the, the most important, if, if, the, the most significant leader in the church, but instead, instead he says, I'm an elder just like you. I'm just like, so we see a little bit of humility coming through in Peter's life. So what changed? What, what, what caused Peter to have that much humility and encouraged the early church to clothe themselves in humility? And I think first and foremost, it's that he was now indwelled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's something he didn't have on the night where he betrayed Jesus, where he denied Jesus. He didn't have the Holy Spirit in him yet, but I think he also realized from that night, that experience that he had, how pride sets us up for the fall, and then he experienced God redeeming him. Using that experience, probably the worst mistake that Peter had ever made in his life, God brings that back around and we see him redeeming Peter through that. So for anybody in here who, who's sitting here right now and you're thinking, like, I've, I've messed up too much. I've done too many things. I've made mistakes. They're, they're too big. God could never use me. That's a lie straight out of Satan's playbook. All right, that's the lie that Satan wants you to believe, that you're too messed up that God could never use you. Because we see in Peter, like, no, none of us have messed up as bad as Peter, all right? None of us have done that. And God still, he redeems Peter and he uses him. God actually specializes in redeeming the things that are broken in this world and using them for his honor and for his glory. God can and will use you, but you have to surrender to him. You have to surrender to God. You have to let him use you because God's not going to force himself into your life. You have to clothe yourself in humility. Peter goes on to tell the elders to shepherd the flock, not by, not by compulsion, but by willingness. Right? He says, don't lord it over the flock. Don't revel in the fact that, that, that you're the leader. Become one of them. Become a servant. Set an example for them. And then even uh, or after that, he, he goes in and he calls out the younger people, the younger generation. And he says, you also need to show humility in submitting to the elders in the church. Right? Because as a youth pastor, I know. Our teenagers know everything. Right? They, don't need, they don't need to hear it from adults. They know everything. They've got it all figured out. Peter says, humble yourselves to the elders in the church. But then he goes on here in verse 5 and he says, all of you, dress yourselves in humility. All of you. Every single one of us. The reason you see the quotation marks there around the statement that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, that's actually a quote from the Old Testament. Right? Anytime you see quotes like that in the New Testament, they're usually referring back to Old Testament scripture. So that comes out of Proverbs chapter 3. And, and, and Peter, he reminds us that when we humble ourselves to one another, we're, we're really humbling ourselves under the, the power of God. Right? When we humble ourselves to one another, we, we are humbling ourselves to the almighty power of God. And at the right time, it says that he will lift us up in honor. God will lift us up in honor. Though right now, it, it, we might currently be mocked for our beliefs. We might be, we might be ridiculed. We might even be shunned by culture. When, when Jesus is revealed, we will be lifted up in honor. Right? That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. That brings me to my next point, is that, that Satan is the real enemy, not culture. Okay, Satan is the real enemy, not culture. It is so important to know who the real enemy is. Especially when we're talking about wartime situations. Like, we should know who the enemy is. Did you guys know that in wartime situations that there has been uh, instances where over 10% of the casualties were caused by friendly fire? Okay, and friendly fire is simply when, when you fire on your allies instead of your enemies. One of the worst situations, I read about this a little bit, one of the worst situations that happened was just at the end of World War II. It was on the day before the official surrender of Germany. British Royal Air Force planes were flying around, right, and they ended up sinking three German warships. They thought that these German warships were carrying uh, German military officials who were trying to escape Germany and head to Norway. What those ships were actually full of were uh, survivors from the German concentration camps that had been liberated. Over 7,300 people lost their lives in that attack. All because they didn't know who the ally or who the enemy was. 
Right? And it's a different picture today. We have the ability to share information a lot faster than they did back then, so we could probably share that with people, but they had no idea. They saw German warships, they assumed it was the enemy, so they sunk them. It is so important to know who your enemy is. Now, if you're married, <clears throat> you know there's friendly fire much closer to home, right? <laughs> Happens. It's okay. Like, as, we, as I do uh, premarital counseling or even just marital counseling, I think all the pastors do this. One of the things we, we share with the couples is your spouse is not your enemy. Right? Your spouse is not your enemy. And if you're in here now and you're, you're newlywed or, or you're engaged to be married and you're thinking, well, that's stupid. Of course my spouse isn't my enemy. Yeah, be married for 10 years and then come talk to me, okay? Like, there, there is friendly fire at home. And, and, and there, it's true, there is an enemy out there who is trying to destroy your marriage, okay? But, it, but it's not your spouse. I promise you, it's, it's, it's not your spouse. You guys want the same thing. You're fighting for the same thing. And so we need to understand who the actual enemy is. And I know it feels like it's culture. Man, when we look out there and see the things that are going on in culture today, like I know it feels like it is culture that is the enemy because that's what we can see. Like in very tangible ways we can see that culture is doing things that goes against the will of God. We see people making decisions and, and, and shouting opinions that we know are contrary to God. We can see that in culture and so it's so easy for us to forget that those people are created in the image of God. It is so easy for us to forget that. I think about that, watching TV, whatever, whatever news channel you watch, right? Like anytime there's somebody up there of, of opposing belief from what you believe, man, the thoughts that go through our head. <laughs> that person was created in the image of God just as much as we were. That person has immeasurable value, and, 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 and they're the ones that we want to lash out against, but really behind the scenes there's something else going on. There's a true enemy behind the scenes that is guiding that and directing that. So we have to know who our enemy is. There is actually a spiritual battle going on. Jesus says this in Luke 22. Oh, what? Hang on. Look, oh my gosh, killing me. All right. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to, to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. Jesus goes to prayer for Simon and prays that Simon's faith won't fail. See, Simon and the rest of the disciples really were ignorant of, of this spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes. And I think it's, it, it's so interesting because Satan actually goes to God to ask for permission. Right, so even though he, 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 we talk about that Satan is the prince of this world, he doesn't just have free reign. Right? He's not in control of anything. He still has to go to God to get permission. Like Satan wanted to just completely destroy Peter and the other disciples. Right? He wanted to sift through them and, and take all the wheat so they would just blow away like chaff in the wind. But he had to go to Jesus to ask permission first. Right? It reminds me of the story of Job in the Old Testament. Again, Satan had to ask God's permission before he could bring all the trials and, 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 and hurt into Job's life. So, so Satan is not in control. So I hope that, that brings a little encouragement to whatever you're dealing with. right? Whatever struggles you're dealing with in life, even though it's probably not the way you would want it to be, God is still in control of that situation. God is still sovereign over that situation. He has a plan. He has a purpose for that particular situation in your life. I also hope it brings you encouragement that Jesus prayed for, for Peter. To think about that, to think about Jesus, to think about the Messiah praying for us, interceding for us. It actually says this 
Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus intercedes with God the Father for us. And so we see again what, what Jesus said to, to, to his disciples, and then we contrast that to, to Peter's early church letter, uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in the faith. Stay alert. Stay alert. Like, we can't be lazy about this. We have to be attentive. And even though it feels like the, like the culture is, is our enemy, it feels like everyone is against us, right? You try to share your, your belief, you try to share your faith, and man, culture just comes crashing down on you, but the great enemy is the devil. It says he's prowling around like a roaring lion. Like, listen, the, the devil is not God, right? The devil is not omnipresent. He can only be one place at once but he's always on the move. He is always on the move, and he's looking for opportunities to devour us. He's described as a roaring lion. Other places in the Bible, he's described as a, as a fowler, right, which is somebody who, who, who traps birds, who captures birds, and their whole thing is they have to be secretive and silent, right? They have to be sneaky so the bird doesn't know they're there. And even in other places, Satan is described as an angel of light, so he has all these different mechanisms, all these different ways that he is, he is getting into our life. I love how uh, Charles Spurgeon, he's one of the greatest theologians ever, uh, but he's kind of hard to read. Uh, but he, he says this about this verse. He says, stand firm, resist. Be more prayerful every time he is more active. He will soon give up if he finds that his attacks drive you to Christ. Often has Satan been nothing but a big black dog to drive Christ's sheep nearer to the master. And so, how is Satan attacking you right now? How is Satan getting into your life right now? Is, it, is he roaring at you? Right? Is, is, is he roaring at you? Is, is he sneaking into your life and he's, he's, he's manipulating you and getting into situations that you can't even see he's there until you step back and look? Right? Is, he, is, he, is he masquerading as, as an angel of light, kind of tickling your ears, telling you the things that you want to hear? How is Satan working in your life? And whatever that is, whatever that looks like right now, Use that to draw near to God. Let Satan push you towards God. Because that's where hope comes from. That's where our, our, our protection comes from. God will protect you. If we pursue him recklessly, like we talked about last week, you'll find that those, those roars of Satan, they, they become a lot less frightening. They become a lot less scary. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So even the Apostle Paul, just like Peter, he knew that our battle was not against culture. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And he talks about the, the evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world, right, and the mighty powers of, of this, this dark world. And so to me, this 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 really describes a couple different things going on here. Even though the, the devil isn't omnipresent, he has agents everywhere. <laughs> right, there, there, there are followers of Satan everywhere. So we have to be ready, we have to be 
prepared. This also tells me that uh, Satan is highly organized. Right? There's some sort of, of structure going on here. He talks about rulers and authorities. Like Satan has this, this hierarchy to his, arm, to his army, and we don't know exactly what that is. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we know that Satan's strategic. We know that he's, he's cunning. Like He isn't just randomly doing things, hoping that he, he gets through to us. Right? Satan has, has a plan, and his subordinates are carrying that plan out. Like He knows when you're vulnerable. He knows when you're at your weakest. And that's when Satan comes to attack. Right? That's when Satan comes after us. He knows when we're vulnerable. I think about parents. Man, like when you just have had an awful day, right, and, you, and you're just, you're ready to explode, you're on your, you're on your last straw, and, and one of the kids acts out, and all of a sudden you're like Homer Simpson. Like you don't need, nothing even happened, right, and you're like, want to strangle your kid? They didn't even do anything wrong, really, right? Like, so that, that's Satan coming into our lives. Like we are vulnerable right then because of everything else that's happened throughout the day, and now our kid does one little thing wrong, and we explode, right? Or our spouse says one thing, and, and, and we explode, whatever that looks like, right? Satan knows when we're at our weakest, and that's when he, he, he comes in for the attack. And so it's important that we remind ourselves who the real enemy is, and that we spend our, our time and our energy fighting the real enemy. Because if we're not, if we're not fighting the right enemy, like, we're never going to win. We're never going to win this battle. We have to know who the true enemy is. I see so many Christians that you just look at social media or you, you look at, at, at TV. There's so many Christians who are spending so much time and energy fighting culture, who are going after and attacking the things in culture, but they never go up against the real enemy. And listen, I'm not saying that we, we don't have to take a stand. Of course we do. Of course there's times we have to take a stand against culture. But we have to do it in a way that, that, that honors God. This is why Peter calls us to be a light to our neighbors, even when they persecute us. Right? We have to be a light to our neighbors. And, and look, like we don't have to fight this culture war out of fear or desperation because the truth is God's already won this war. God has already, already won this war. We know ultimately how this is going to play out. Right? We know that God is the victor in this. Like If you are a believer, you're on the winning team. I can guarantee you that you will experience ultimate victory if you're a believer, God is going to win this war. And so for us in this fight, it's not about fear. Right? God is the winner. And this, this brings me to the next point. That we trust in God for ultimate victory. Okay, as Christians, we trust in God for ultimate victory. Jesus says this in Luke 22. He says, You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in just a moment from this, just right after this conversation, Jesus is going to tell the disciples that all of them are going to desert him. Right, so he, right now he, he's rewarding them, he's praising them for everything they've done because up until this point, the disciples have been with him. Right, they've been with him through ministry, through ups and downs, through thick and thin, through all the attacks on his life. And not once have they, have they left him. Right? There was other teachers, there was other rabbis they could have followed, and not once did they leave Jesus' aside. And so he's saying, you've been here through this whole thing. And even though Jesus knows that once he gets arrested, they're going to scatter, right? he knows that that's just going to be kind of a, a faltering in their faith, that it's not actually going to be a complete failure. It was only a temporary thing, and that they would be restored. And then once they were empowered with the Holy Spirit, they would be courageous in their service to him. They would no longer flee. They would no longer run 
And then Peter, in his letter, he says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. So why did God call us into his eternal glory? Why did God do that? Did we do anything to deserve it? Was it because we served him so well or because we were better than our neighbors? No, it was out of God's kindness. This is simply God's character. His decision to invite him into his glory is just based out on his character. It's not anything that we've done. And how do we share in his eternal glory? It says by means of Christ Jesus. That's how we share in God's glory. Through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, through his resurrection, we can share in the eternal glory of God. Peter reminds the church here that um, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering. The way he writes it, it's definitive, right? There's not a question. It's not if, it's when. There's going to be suffering, but he says it'll be for a little while. Again, he reminds us it's temporary. This is our temporary home, and the suffering and the trials that we go through are also temporary. Right, Peter, I can't think of anybody better to talk about God's restoration than, than him. He experienced it firsthand. Like in, 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 in John chapter 21, we get to see this, this amazing scene right, where, where, where Jesus comes to Peter and he gives him this opportunity to redeem himself for what he did on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And so Jesus asked him, do you love me? And he asked him three times, and all three times, Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep, right? Then tend my sheep, then, then, then take care of the flock. And that's what we get to see here is Peter telling us to go out and take care of the flock. He is echoing the same things that Jesus passed on to him. And we're not only promised restoration, but support and strength. And to be placed on a firm foundation. See, tradition and history tell us that all of, the, all of the disciples, except for John, were martyred. Including Peter. Every one of them was martyred for what they believed, for what they did. And so what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to share in his glory? I think it's this glory of purified character. This glory of, of perfected humanity. The glory of complete victory. The glory of being honored by a king, the glory of the immediate and constant presence of God within us when we give our life, our life over to Christ, the glory of reflecting God's own glory in our lives. That's how we get to be part of it. That's what it means to share in God's glory. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The things that we're dealing with, the suffering that we're dealing with, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, don't even compare to the glory that will come later. It doesn't even compare. And that's why this battle is worth fighting. This battle is not a losing effort because of the, the promise of sharing in God's eternal glory. See, in, uh, in chapter 5, or in verse 7 of this chapter, Peter tells us to cast all of our cares upon God to cast all of our cares upon God. Who better than a fisherman to tell us about casting, right? And this, this idea of casting means to throw. Throw our cares, throw our concerns, throw our hurts and our troubles at God. 
Like, don't carefully set them down or, or, or just kind of pack them away, right, where you can keep one hand on them in case you feel like going back to your old ways. No, throw them at God. Throw our cares at God. And Peter could say that in the, in the midst of, of the persecution of the church that they were seeing then, and even knowing that it was only going to get worse, Peter could still say, cast your cares at God because he cares. Throw your cares at God. So this is what it looks like to live a life that honors God. We see all these struggles. We see all these things that we're dealing with. And every single one of us is in a different place in our life. Every single one of us is dealing with, with something different. And yet God is faithful. God is there waiting for us to come to him, to bring our cares to him. It's like, God, I can't do it on my own anymore. God, I need you. I don't know if they used the quote last week or a couple weeks ago that it was, the only thing you need to be a Christian is need. That's it. The only thing you need to be a Christian is need. We need to need God in our life. And so we cast our cares on him. We cast our problems, we cast our troubles on him because he is sovereign, he is in control. No matter what it is we're dealing with, he's got a plan for you. He's doing something in your life. And again, even though it might not seem like this is, this is where I want to be, it's not how I would choose, God is doing something in your life. So trust in that. Trust in what Jesus, the information that he gave to his disciples on that final night. Trust in the letter that Peter writes to the early church. This applies to all of us today. We can trust in God, and, and, and Satan is our true enemy. It's not culture. Remember that when you see somebody, right, who's saying things that you don't want to hear, who's saying things that you don't want to say, saying things that you don't agree with and you don't believe in. Remember that Satan is the real enemy. There's something going on behind the scenes. There's a battle going on that we can't even see. But God is in control. God is sovereign. And he's the one who's doing the work. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I thank you for this, this series, God. I, I just, uh, I know there's been some difficult things that we've talked about, God, but, but I, pray that, I pray that today's message is, is more of an encouragement. To know that you are in control, God. To know that, that ultimately victory comes through you, God. That this battle will be won. And so, God, I thank you just, just for who you are, God. I thank you for the opportunity we have to, to be part of what you're doing in this world. God, and I pray that every one of us would, would take this to heart, God, that we would listen to both Jesus and Peter's counsel. God, that we would remember who the real enemy is, God, because I know that we've, we've hurt relationships, God. We've, we've hurt people in our lives because of, of, because of attacking them like they were the enemy. So, God, I pray that you would just... I pray that you would give us a heart to heal relationships that have been broken, God. I pray that you would, you would drive us to, to be uh, a fixer in those relationships, God. But I, I pray ultimately that we can, we can just remember who the enemy is. God, that we can, we can love our neighbors like we love ourselves, God, and, and we talk about who our neighbors are, God. That's everybody, everyone we come in contact with. God, help us to be people who are different. Help us to be people who, who are like people that others want to be. God, we praise you for, for who you are, for all that you do. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.